three episodes last year, and are looking forward to many more. And as I look to the future, I set up a method for you, the listener, to reach out to This American Pinball via email. Our address is thisamericanpinball at gmail.com. Feel free to send me any questions and comments. Questions like, what is This American Pinball? Why are your shows so long? Or, why are your shows so short? Or who the hell are you, and how did you get in my house? And if at all possible, please try to maintain some sort of sense of decorum. I don't want to run into... Oh, I've been waiting to tell this guy off. Dear Josh, your show sucks. And your website, well, I wouldn't... Even if you were a... Your mother... Well, that's my two cents. So keep the change, you filthy animal. Oh, pop culture reference. Nailed it. And send. Okay. As we're on the topic of future outlook, here's a little insight as to what you can expect in the coming months. First, more sound design and more music. I've really been getting into Synthwave, and the songs on the podcast are mostly tunes that I've written, and I want to do more of that, writing cues and retro 80s style songs for the podcast, as well as maybe digging a bit deeper into the sound design elements. Further, I'm going to try my hand at doing my first Journey 2 or wall-to-wall coverage of the Texas Pinball Festival, which I will be in attendance. So if you're going to be at TPF, I'll have some t-shirts and stickers with the This American Pinball logo to hand out. And so if you want one, you can find me out and about at the festival. Now, if you're not attending TPF and still would like a, a shirt or a sticker, I'll be giving away whatever's left when I return. And depending on the interest, we may do a second run of swag. The festival in Texas will be my first major convention, and my first pinball-specific event, and I'm looking very forward to it, although I do have a bit of social anxiety, and being amongst such a large crowd does concern me. I have ASD, and so I'm bringing a friend with me who's a comic book artist who draws and inks for the D-Ward, who has a ton of convention experience and is there to help keep me in a comfortable state of mind. In my mind, which tends to view things in a very binary sort of way, I envision the trip as either being a scenario of panic... Josh, over here. Josh, how did you come up with this American... Mr. Jacobs. One at a time, please. 
Is it true that this American pinball is a front for money laundering? Yes. I mean, no. Hey, Mr. What? Jacob, what's going on with the new year? Are you doing anything special? Or one of isolation. Hey, everybody, this American pinball in the house. Anybody want a free shirt? Anyone? Hello? Logically, I know it's likely to fall somewhere in the middle, or a situation where I hand a t-shirt to someone who has no idea who I am, or what this American pinball is, but rather wants a free t-shirt to mow the grass in. Regardless of what it turns out to be, it's sure to be an experience. The next topic I want to talk about is virtual pinball. That's it. I'm out of here. Now, wait a minute. Don't turn off the podcast yet. I'm well aware of the utter disdain some in the community have regarding anything but a full-size, no-shit, legitimate pinball machine. And I'm with you. I'm personally not a fan of virtual pins. But if you are... You burn in hell. <laughs> but seriously, I don't care. Whatever floats your boat, you know? And just between you and me, I actually really like the virtual reality pinball on PSVR by Zen Studios. I mean, when you're playing Jaws and Jaws comes up and bites the floor when you drain a ball, that's pretty badass. You're gonna need a bigger boat. Nevertheless, no matter what your feelings are, it seems with the release of the Gottlieb Haunted House Machine by Toy Shock, or the Attack from Mars and Star Wars editions presented at CES by Arcade 1UP, there are bound to be some who buy, like, and flood our marketplaces with these piles of hot garbage. Which is probably the thing about these machines that annoys me the most. Like, I'm sure some of you are. I am an avid arcade collector with seven machines of my own, and it totally sucks to see the Facebook marketplaces flooded with used one-ups or modded one-ups under the title Arcade. It should be a felony to label these things as such. They are toys and should be designated properly. Anyway, so within a year, I guarantee there will be several close-up shots of a haunted house or an attack from Mars, which will make me go, ooh, and click, only to find that there's a small toy replica instead. And it's interesting to me, because other than a toy, I'm not sure what purpose these things serve. Bear with me here. So the Stern home pin was designed as a low-cost option to get new buyers into the market, who are likely to be put off by the high prices of commercial machines. Now, I have some tolerance with the arcade 1-ups, even though I don't own one, 
because they do provide a good gateway into the arcade hobby. I mean, the price of a 1-Up is not much less than the cost of an actual machine that needs a little bit of work. However, a four dollars to $500 price tag for a little mini virtual pin, jumping to a three dollars to $4,000 price tag, is not a gateway option. Now, yes, I understand that Arcade 1-Up is not a subsidiary of Stern, pushing out sample taste to hook you into the real deal. Psst. Hey, man. You want to try some pinball? Oh, uh, I, I don't know. I don't think I'm supposed to be playing mini virtual pins. That's a good answer, Josh. What the hell are you? Some giant dog? Remember, it can be dangerous to one's reputation to play virtual pinball. Who the hell are you talking to? And if you see something, report it and help take a bite at a crime. So it's hard for me to see anyone who's interested in a virtual pin pony up for one of these. I mean, for a little bit more money and with thrifty shopping, you could probably build your own full-size one. Although, you know, I will say that I think it would be pretty cool and, and funny at the same time if somebody owned, like, a, a tiny home and had it filled with, like, tiny arcades and this little tiny pinball machine. But... I, I wanted to know what your thoughts on this was. And so I asked around. Yeah, so, you know, um, I've, I've played some of the nicest virtual pin, like custom builds that I think probably are out there. And even those aren't for me as a pinball player. But um, I also have a couple of the arcade one-up cabinets, like the you know, arcade cabinets. And for what they are, I, I don't hate them. Like, they do bring the game, you know, to your house. Um I think for pinball, these things that they're whatever is it like five fifty or six fifty five price point. Um, I think it's going to bring a lot of new people into pinball, um, and I think you know, in all that's a win. Uh, so even though I'm probably not a buyer from one of these things, uh, I think there is a market for it, and it might expand pinball in general because people will buy these as an entry and then you know go get a real machine eventually. Well, I, I really like that. I, I really like. The thought of bringing 12 Gottlieb games into an affordable cabinet and uh, a family or a college student in a dorm room or, or whoever it might be to a console that they can play at a reasonable price. I mean, you know the price of pinball machines and um, that's that, that, that when you buy a pinball machine, you buy a pinball machine and you are... You're, you're kind of strapped to it until you either put it in the trash can or you sell it. And what I mean by that is, is it's never going to work right if you don't maintain it correctly. And with the digital format, um, it basically brings the gameplay to the point where it always plays as it's designed. Now, that's the positive side of it. The negative side of it is, is it is not a pinball machine. There is not a ball in that machine. So the aspects of you know just basic physics, whether it's the tilt of the game or or friction, or how fast the ball spins, or the limitations of the fidelity that the programmers have. That's that's always going to be there. But to me, uh, the, the game itself and and being able to introduce that for I mean less than ten percent of the cost of a single game. I I think it's I think it's a really good idea. It's why I I really like virtual pinball. I don't necessarily like playing it, but I like the idea of it. And 
I had a really nice cabinet in my house about a year ago at uh, one of our big parties, and I fell in love with it just because it had so many games on it. Games that don't even exist in real life. You know, they're, they're, they are made up specific virtual pinball software games that are just unbelievable. And there you have it. If you're a pinball guy, these things like virtual pinball in general probably isn't for you. Now, like both Bill and Jamie, I get how this can serve as an introduction to pinball for some folks. Hell, I got into pinball by falling in love with the pinball arcade on PS4. However, I wouldn't give pinball arcade all the credit, as I already had a pretty extensive arcade game room and was on the road to buying a pinball machine even if I didn't know it at the time. And these platforms, bringing pinball to the masses, may be good for those in the market to sell a machine. Bill mentioned in our conversation a theory he had that the pinball arcade could have been a factor in price increases in Tales of the Arabian Nights. So I did some research. The pinball arcade was released for the PC in November of 2013 and in December of that year for iOS. And Toten was one of the first available tables. Now the average asking price from mid-2011 to mid-2015 was $6,700. From what I saw, there wasn't a ton of fluctuation. However, the Pinball Arcade comes to PS4 and Xbox years later, and Toten is added to the console roster in 2015. Now, from about mid-2015 to 2017, the average asking price was $7,300, so a $600 difference. Now, is this due to more exposure, bringing in more buyers, and subsequently driving the prices up? Maybe. Regardless, since 2017, prices have stayed in the $7,000 to $8,000 range, so the mini virtual pins may create some buzz and a thirst for older titles. We'll have to watch the used Gottlieb market to see. Further, for the total purist, there are some games out there so rare and expensive that emulation may be the only way you're likely to ever have it in your home. Take Atari's Major Havoc. It's a pretty rare game already, and I've only seen a few for sale, and even then, at pretty high prices. Odds are, I'll never have one. So, it looks like emulation may be the only option. Now, is there a super rare title that's on the Toy Shot Gottlieb machine or the arcade one-up that's so rare that you're not likely to see it again? I don't know. I mean, Haunted House is a pretty rare title, but there are some out there. So if you're an average Joe and you want something to mess around with, the mini pins may be a good, affordable option. But no one that I know who has full-size arcades or regular pinball machines is going to put one of these in their game room. So basically, they suck. And if you buy one, you're out of the club. Or do whatever you want. It's your money. Now be
Now for our final topic, we're going to discuss new inbox pins. And I see myself as one of the lucky ones, as I've bought two new inbox pins, and neither of them have had any mechanical or playfield issues. However, word on the street is that both are quite common. Shortly after I released episode 3, where I spoke to Dave Howard about planking, a buddy of mine was like, Hey, if you want to see some real playfield issues, check out some of the new Sterns. Then he went through some examples with this Batman 66, having planking and rippling in the playfield. Then another friend of mine mentioned he had similar issues with his Batman 66 and his Deadpool. I mentioned that I had my eye on a Stranger Things, and he issued a warning. Well, I wouldn't get one unless you can see it first. Now, I'll admit the thought is troublesome to consider that there may be cosmetic issues with a brand new machine. Now, if they're ones that you wouldn't notice, unless under extreme lighting and only at certain angles, I would let that slide. Basically because I would never comb through the machine so meticulously to find such faults. However, if the flaw was obvious while skimming over the machine, sure, I'd have a problem with that, especially if I paid a high price for the machine. Now, Pinsight is rife with playfield issues around the posts and dimpling, some more egregious than others. And again, if, if I can't see it in a look over or while playing, then no harm, no foul. But from what I gather from forum responses and friends is caveat tour or buyer beware. Unlike playfield issues, mechanical problems are a different breed. Simply because, A, as a pinball owner, you're probably used to tackling mechanical issues and, as such, have the tools and knowledge to handle them, unlike a playfield problem, which can require much more drastic measures to correct. And B, most, if not all, manufacturers are fairly receptive to mechanical problems and can offer solutions. For example, the Slimer Mech on Ghostbusters. Nevertheless, any issue mechanical or otherwise, on a new inbox pin is still frustrating. And my friend John Cope, who is a local operator, is having some issues with his new Elvira House of Horrors. Now, it's been widely discussed that the issues with the ramp that raises in front of the house can get hung up on the gargoyle. And that was happening to John's machine. But there were other issues as well. Here's John. Uh, I am having that. That is one issue I'm having. And, uh, what I'm seeing with it is the uh, that that right gargoyle, um, at least in my case on my game, uh, the screw that holds that mechanism down underneath the gargoyle uh, is coming loose and it and it's shifting over to enough to where the ramp will actually hang up on the hinge pin on it. And uh, either sometimes the ramp will go past the pin and then it'll it'll catch the pin trying to come back down, so the ramp will just either stay up. Or the ramp will come up and it'll you can actually see it try to bend the uh, the metal uh, what is that the flange on that uh, piece there uh, on the ramp you'll see it bend it some when it comes up if you can't get past the pin. My remedy on it is I've I've loosened that screw and actually adjusted that gargoyle over a little bit, but 
the problem with that is when it moves uh, too much, it makes the gargoyle bind. So when you hit it with the ball, the gargoyle will stay uh, in the up position and it won't come back down. So there's kind of a happy medium there you have to get it at. And I'm, I, the only thing I'm going to try next, I'm going to try a little bit of 242 Loctite or something on that screw to see if I can keep it from coming loose. It takes several plays for it to knock loose, but you can see it when it starts shifting over to, to jam to, to where it'll start catching the ramp again. Have you had any other new pins, you know, come with uh, those types of complications before? Uh, this is my first new pin that I've actually ever owned. Uh, all my other games are all old ones. I've got a brand new Monsters that's, uh, that's here. I'm going to go pick it up Friday, and hopefully we'll see how it goes when I set it up and see what it does. Yeah, one of the things I'm noticing on that ramp, too, and I think it's not just the gargoyle that moves, but I think as that ramp uh, raises up and lowers back down, sometimes it looks like, to me, that it actually may shift over a little bit. So could it be shimmed or uh, put something in there to keep it, you know, to, to take that play out of it to where it wasn't, wouldn't shift over to that side. Uh, Cause there isn't, okay. there's not much clearance at all. Um, okay. Either that, or, or I, I was thinking about, I, I don't want to do anything to mess the game up, but I, I was thinking about maybe uh, that hinge pin sticks out quite a bit. It's kind of like, uh, like, like pressed on, on the end to keep it from coming out. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would, I was thinking maybe like, uh, possibly a, uh, like a rivet type hinge in there where it was more of a flat head on that one side to where it would give it some more clearance and not have a tendency to hang up like a round, like a rounded head type instead of that straight pin sticking out. Right. John told me there was a dead switch and some wiring wasn't secured, which when the play field was propped up and lowered, the wires snagged and tore away from a different switch. He got a new switch to replace the dead one from Stern and resoldered and secured the wiring from the other. Now, if you're having these issues, contact your distributor. Because I read on Pinside that there was a washer set that can help with the ramp slash gargoyle issue. And as for the turret, I've read that some people were having similar issues and that it being related to a possible opto on the underside of the playfield and with them being misaligned or not secured well enough. And honestly, beyond the fluke dead switch and the wire issue, I mean, I think I would be just a little bit miffed to have to spend a bunch of time fiddling with all these things before I got to enjoy my new inbox pin. But perhaps it just comes with the territory. I mean, as I've mentioned, I've yet to do any quality control maintenance on a new inbox. But maybe I'm just lucky. All right, so that wraps up episode four. Oh, and now that we have uh, an email address... If any of you write and create music and want a chance to get it played on the podcast, just send me an MP3 of your track, and if the right context comes up where I can use it in an episode, I'll use your song and I'll credit you at the end. I try to stick with instrumentals if you do, and the more retro sounding the better. So send any of your music questions or comments to thisamericanpinball at gmail.com. You can also find me on Facebook. Just search for This American Pinball. Now, I want to give a special thank you to Bill Dodd, Jamie Boyd, and John Cope for coming on the show. And I want to give an extra thank you to Zach Minnie and Dennis Creasel. Both spoke kindly of the podcast on their shows. You can catch Zach on Straight Down the Middle and This Week in Pinball. And Dennis on his show, The Eclectic Gamers Podcast. Additional songs in this episode were by Magic Sword and Metaphasic. And finally, when I asked Jamie, what is the first thing you do 
when your pins are having mechanical problems? He said, You want to shake and nudge and thrust a machine. Okay, that's all for me. So good day or good night.